For those of you who uh, may not know me, my name is Ryan Yoho. I serve at Grace here as one of the lay elders. Pastor Doug is out of town this weekend. It's a privilege to be able to fill in this morning. Um, as I was getting ready this week, I realized that with the lead pastor being gone, maybe I had some freedom to try something new. So, in a break with uh, long-standing tradition, this morning I'm going to preach from John chapter 2. Over the, over, the past, serious, over the past several weeks, Doug has done a great job of laying the foundation, introducing us to the book of John, and, and showing us how John is introducing us to Jesus. Uh, one of the very first things we looked at was um, the purpose statement, the very, very handy purpose statement that John put in his gospel at the end. Uh, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So why don't we take a look at that right now before we even get started. Remind ourselves of, of this. This is John chapter 20, 30 and 31 up on the screen there. But it says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wrote his account of Jesus' ministry so that we would believe. We would believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He's the Messiah Christ sent to save those who believe in him by giving them new life. And John specifically chose to write about certain signs certain miracles that Jesus did, knowing that they would help people to better understand who Jesus is. Jesus, the man from Nazareth who had earthly parents, who had friends, who walked around and taught in Israel before eventually being killed for being a troublemaker, that same Jesus was God. He was God before he ever took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was God when he walked among us. He was God when he died on the cross, when he rose from the grave to bring us life. John wanted his readers to see that evidence, um, to see the glory of God revealed in Jesus he wanted his readers to believe that Jesus was God. And out of all the things that Jesus said and did, John selected a handful of real-life, real-world stories to put in his book to help us see and believe. And today we get to look at the first story that John includes. It's a story that immerses us in the fullness of who Jesus is, in his identity, we see the glory of Jesus being fully divine, the Son of God. And we see Jesus as fully human, born of a woman, dwelling among his fellow men. And in a lot of ways, it's a pretty ordinary 
day-in-the-life kind of story. Um, not unlike something that we might live through. It starts off with Jesus as a guest at a small-town wedding celebration. Um, but this is the story of when Jesus changes water into wine. He transforms one thing into something different. And when he transforms the water into wine, we get to see how he engages with his creation, how he transforms it with a compassion and a power that reveal his glory. And it's not just the water into wine that we're going to get to see about. This account that John shares with us is going to show us how Jesus transforms our lives in other ways with that same compassion and power. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning struggling with certain relationships. Perhaps they're strained or they're, they're just overwhelming or maybe non-existent. Um, Jesus transforms our relationships and our perspective on those relationships. Maybe you're struggling with, with guilt and shame. We're all struggling with sin, with the, the fact that we don't do what we know is right. We give in to temptation. And then we have to deal with not just the external consequences of our sin, but, but the internal turmoil that that produces. We struggle with how do we see ourselves afterwards? How do we see ourselves in relationship to God? How do we think God sees us? Jesus, in his compassion and power, he transforms all of that. He transforms how we deal with guilt and with shame. Or maybe, maybe life's going pretty good. No real complaints. But you're finding that, that real joy is still kind of fleeting or just beyond reach. Even the good things in life aren't especially satisfying, and yet you're still tempted to chase them even further. We'll see how Jesus transforms even how we receive and enjoy just day-to-day -day blessings of life. So turn with me now to uh, John chapter 2. We're in verses 1 through 11 this week. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Comes right before Acts. If you happen to grab one of those blue Bibles on the shelves in the back, I think it's on page 887. If you, if you don't have a Bible and you grab one of those Bibles, please just keep it. It's a gift from us to you. So John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. We're going to read the whole thing through right now, and then we'll go back, back through it in some more detail. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, 
there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. As we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see how Jesus reveals his glory as he transforms four just fundamental areas of life. He transforms the nature of our family relationships. He transforms our need for purification. He also transforms just the simple joys of life. And he transforms our beliefs. Some quick context. Jesus is still in his very first week of public ministry. Uh, just the previous week, which, which also happens to be last week when we taught, he was calling disciples, calling his very first disciples um, after being baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus and some of those disciples are invited to a wedding in nearby Cana. We don't know how many disciples or exactly which ones, but it seems reasonable to assume that John, the, the author of this book, was there. John was likely one of those very first disciples called by Jesus, and that also might explain why this particular story is included in his gospel, but not in any of the other gospels. Um, the other gospels depended on other eyewitnesses uh, who may not have yet been traveling with Jesus so early in his ministry. Mary the mother of Jesus, is also at the wedding. She seems to be in some position of authority or responsibility, as we'll see shortly. And one other piece of background, when the text says it's a wedding, um, I just want to make sure we're thinking of that more as a, a big extended reception, maybe with like a multi-day family reunion kind of feel to it. Um, this is a big public social occasion, celebrating a bride and a groom, and also celebrating the coming together of two families. And that brings us to verses 3 through 5, which is where we'll see our first transformation, where we'll see how Jesus changes the nature of family relationships. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, Mary, came to him and said, they have no wine. On the one hand, not a huge deal. Compared to some of the other problems that Jesus would face, we'll read about later in the book of John, and other signs he would perform, 
running out of wine doesn't really compare to, say, someone who's been paralyzed for 40 years or someone being born blind or Lazarus dying relatively young and leaving behind his grieving sisters. But, on the other hand, in that moment, in that real-life, real-world situation, in that wedding, this wine problem was a big deal. It was a big deal. Culturally, it was this huge occasion, and it was a devastating embarrassment for the groom and his family if they were seen to have been ill-prepared or, or, or foolish enough to somehow not be ready to, um, to serve their guests the way they were expected to. It was, it was actually putting at risk all the goodwill, all the social goodwill that was part of the whole reason for having the wedding celebration in the first place. So it was, a, it was a big deal in that situation, but why would Mary care so much? And why, why would she bring this to Jesus? She wasn't just reporting the news. It wasn't just a, hey, they're running out of wine. She was letting him know of a big problem and apparently hoping that he would do something. We don't know the details. Um, we don't know exactly what Mary's role was, but it does seem like she was somehow invested in the success of the wedding. Perhaps she was close to the groom's family. Some commentators speculated that perhaps she was involved with the catering. Um, but regardless, it's clear that a problem came up that was important to her, and she went to her oldest son, there's no mention of her husband Joseph in this story. There's no mention of Joseph anywhere in the Bible once Jesus began his public ministry. Um, it seems reasonable to think that Joseph may have died at some point in the past, perhaps many years prior by the time we're reading this story. Um, and in that situation, Mary would have probably come to have relied on Jesus for many things. And why wouldn't she, right? I mean, I love my kids. They're pretty great. Some of them are pretty responsible, but her kid was Jesus, right? I mean, he was probably more than just a little helpful around the house. Um, so, so she had this problem that was important to her, and so she did the logical thing, which was she told her grown son Jesus, hoping he would help. But what Mary hadn't realized was that something had changed even in just the past week. Jesus had begun his, his mission, his ministry. And so his response probably wasn't what she was expecting. Or honestly, it probably wasn't what we're expecting as we're reading through this story for the first time. She said to him, they have no wine. And he said to her, and I quote, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is not the most straightforward answer in the world. 
But whatever it means, it does not mean, got it, Mom, I'll take care of it. Right? That's not what he's saying. Let's look at it kind of piece by piece here. First, he responds by calling her woman. To our ears, that sounds somewhere between odd and rude. She's his mother. She's not just some woman. In the original language, it's not that bad. It's not nearly as bad as it sounds to us. It is a very respectful term. Uh, it, kind of like a sincere, very polite use of the word ma'am. Um, it can even be used in a very loving way. Um, in fact, it's the exact same word that Jesus uses when he's hanging, dying on the cross. And he addresses Mary to entrust her into the care of John, his disciple. So it's, it's not rude or dismissive. But there's no getting around the fact that it is still kind of an odd way to address your mother. Even in the original language, it's, it's somewhat distant. Um, Jesus responds to Mary respectfully, even lovingly, but he does not call her mother. The rest of his answer kind of helps us understand why. Because what Mary is concerned about in that moment is not related to what Jesus' mission on earth is all about. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Put a different way. My ministry is just beginning. Its culmination is the cross. I need you to see that I am no longer primarily your son. Jesus has a more important identity, and he needed her to see that. And so before we even get to the water, changing into wine, we see that the first way that Jesus transforms life in this world is that he transforms the nature of family relationships. He's still Mary's son, but in a culture where family and kinship was everything, as evidenced by the wedding they were at, this big giant celebration, he was showing her and showing us that there was a new relationship that mattered far more. We see this elsewhere in scripture, uh, a passage perhaps you're familiar with. It's in Luke 14. Verse 26, when Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not telling us to literally, actively hate our family. But he is saying that we must understand that our relationship to him is supremely important and it makes all other relationships take a back seat in comparison and of course this is true because no other relationship can save you from your sin it doesn't matter how loving or how rewarding or how faithful that relationship may be this relationship matters far more. 
Even Mary, Jesus' mother, needed Jesus to be her savior more than she needed him to be her son. We can put it this way. Jesus transforms our family relationships by establishing his supremacy over them and his sufficiency in them. And it does seem like Mary understood that. She may have just needed to be reminded. Um, which would make sense because she's been treasuring from his birth a great many truths about his mission that he was sent from heaven to accomplish. Um, she doesn't show any disappointment or resentment. Instead, her response is actually a very simple and clear expression of faith. After Jesus responds to her, which was, which was again, a type of correction, loving correction, she, in turn, tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. The implication is that there's a shift. She's no longer expecting a solution, but she is now, all the more, simply trusting Jesus. Whatever he says, do that. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it is something. But it's the right thing, and I can be confident of that. That same truth impacts us, right? Jesus transforms our family relationships by establishing his supremacy and his sufficiency in them. We're called to recognize that our relationship with Jesus is supremely more important than any other human relationship we have. It doesn't change all the scriptures that tell us to honor our father and mother and love and respect our spouse and train up our children or love our neighbor. Those are all true. But it puts those relationships in their proper place, which is in subjection to our relationship with Christ. He is our creator God and therefore is just inherently most worthy. And then on top of that, he's our loving savior who offers us all that we really need in the form of salvation. And as we do struggle in relationships, when we fear, when we have conflict, when, when we're tempted to find our value and our worth in what someone else thinks of us, this passage reminds us that believers are in a relationship that is far more significant and far more secure. When we're lonely, when we're desperately hoping for the gift of a spouse or a child, when we're grieving and missing a loved one who's passed away, this story reminds us that Jesus has met our greatest need, even while he compassionately understands the hurts of this fallen world. Even in our difficult times, he calls us to trust him, and our faithful response ought to be like Mary's. Whatever he says, 
do that. So as we go back to the passage, Mary's replaced a posture of sort of motherly presumption with, with more of an expression of trust in Jesus. And perhaps because of this, because of the lesson learned there, Jesus then seems to kind of go out of his way to show her love and kindness by choosing to address the wine shortage after all. <laughs> um, and that brings us to verse 6, which is the second type of transformation we'll see in this story. Jesus transforms our need for purification. He tells the servants to fill up six large jars with water, but they aren't just any jars. These were purification jars used for ritual cleansing. It's not an accident that he chose those jars. He could have picked something else. He could have picked, like, say, the empty wine jugs. That presumably the servants were like, these are empty now. Um, but he chose these purification jars instead to make a point. The jars were used at the feast to wash everyone's hands so that they would be ceremonially clean before eating, before putting food and drink to their mouths. This particular requirement was more of a Jewish tradition than part of the Old Testament law, but it did reflect a reality of the Old Testament law, which was you must be clean from the impurities of sin and the impurities of the world to be acceptable to your perfectly pure God. God provided a system of sacrifices and ritual cleansing that if performed faithfully, he would accept. But they were just temporary. They, they were superficial coverings. They would have to be repeated over and over because sin and the impurity of life kept contaminating you, right? It, it keeps making us unclean again. And so these purification jars had been emptied in the course of just welcoming all the guests to the feast. Jesus had them refilled to their tops and then had the servants take some to the master of the feast. At some point in the process, we don't actually know when Jesus actually transformed that water in the jars and in the, in the ladle, I assume it's a little ladle, into wine. And as the disciples watched him perform this miracle, Jesus was teaching them something very important. Those purification jars, you won't be needing them anymore. Now that I'm here, we still need purification. Our sin has absolutely contaminated us. We cannot stand defiled by sin in the presence of the holy, pure God. But Jesus is revealing that the ritual of purification is no longer needed. We don't have to do it over and over and over again. When we are washed clean by the blood of Christ, it's a permanent, once-for-all purification. 
In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, God's word tells us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Another passage in Ephesians 2 speaks to the same idea in more detail. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances or laws that he might reconcile us to God through the cross. The disciples couldn't yet understand all of this, but they could start to see that Jesus was marking a significant change in what they knew. He was repurposing jars that were once used for purification, and now he was using them for celebration. They were overflowing with wine because their old function was obsolete. All because Jesus had transformed the need for purification from something we had to do over and over to something that Jesus would do for us once for all of our sin. The application of this truth is, is pretty simple, though it's monumental. It means that we, we must not be trapped by the lie that somehow we aren't worthy, that, that we should be ashamed, that that somehow each new sin adds this fresh brick to a wall that separates us between, that separates us and God. There's no dividing wall. Jesus tore it down once and for all when we believed in him. You are welcome before God because of Jesus. He is delighted in you because of Jesus. And it means that we can reject the false demands of some faiths that, that insist that somehow we have to make things right with God um, or inflict suffering or deprivation on ourselves as punishment for our ongoing guilt. We are forgiven and clean before God. We should still seek to obey his commands and to follow him, but we do that now out of gratitude and out of in, in freedom, not guilt and legalism. So far in this story, Jesus has, has changed the water into wine, and we've seen how he has transformed the nature of family relationships and transformed our need for purification. Let's spend a little more time, though, on the sign itself, the miracle itself of changing the water into the wine. After the jars were filled, Jesus had the servants take some to the master of the feast to taste. Why did he do that? Well, probably, first of all, it was just to reassure the guy that there was, in fact, more wine. <laughs> he was probably starting to panic. He didn't want to have to tell the groom the bad news. Um, but as the master of the feast tasted the wine, he was amazed. It was fantastic. Doesn't tell us this, but I'm going to go off on a, on a bit of a limb and speculate that it may have been the best wine he'd ever tasted. 
relieved and a bit surprised, he calls the groom over and says, everybody serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you saved the good wine until now. John doesn't tell us how the groom responded, but it was, but he was probably kind of confused, right? Because he didn't remember ordering any premium wine, and he definitely didn't tell the servants to save it to the end, but whatever, he's back dancing with the bride, and all things are good. Um, that brings us to the third transformation. Jesus transforms the simple joys of life. Think about what happened here. Jesus, the creator of all things, had instantly transformed water into the highest quality wine. In his compassion and understanding, he had given a great gift to the bridegroom without him even knowing, saving him from public shame. He intervened in a, in a relatively small thing, something that was not a matter of life and death, but it was important to people, to his people. Furthermore, Jesus' presence, his participation in this story, in these events, actually just validate the day-to-day joys that we get to experience in this life. The joys of friends and family, of a wedding celebration, of taking time off from work, of good food and drink. Reminds me of some of the wisdom from the preacher in Ecclesiastes we studied this summer who said, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. These things are blessings from God. And Jesus, the word become flesh, he created them for his people to enjoy. But this story transforms those joys in two ways. First, we get a vivid reminder. You can't miss this reminder in this story that daily pleasures are gifts directly from God. That nice wine, that good food, we're modern people. We understand supply chains and agricultural processes and, and the systems that, that deliver it, that make it. But ultimately, God makes it. He is the provider. And just in case we were inclined to forget that, he just showed us this morning in this passage that he can make it the fast way just as well as he can make it the slow way, right? And just because he usually makes it for us the slow way doesn't mean it's not from the hand of Jesus who makes all things. Second, this passage shows us that the undeserved simple joys of life will be even better when we're with Jesus. It was the best wine Saved for last. And there was no shortage of it. It was overflowing. It was to the brim. Jesus 
transforms the simple joys of life by reminding us to delight in the joy giver who is the source of all blessings now and who will provide even greater blessing in eternity for those who believe in his name. And that brings us to verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Remember, John's goal for his whole book is to provide witness to the signs that Jesus did that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and may have life in his name. And this first sign, changing water into wine, caused his disciples to believe in him. And this is the most important transformation of all. Jesus transforms our beliefs. Those who Jesus calls he changes. He changes them first from unbelief to belief. From thinking perhaps that he's just a man or a teacher or a myth to believing that he's God. The word become flesh sent to save the world and reveal God's glory. For the unbeliever here this morning Please hear that. Jesus Christ is real. He loves you and he wants you to enjoy life with him. But first, your heart and beliefs must be transformed. You have to see that your sin, your disobeying of God's commands, has left you contaminated and that only Jesus can purify you if you trust that believe that he will give you new life for believers for those who already trust in Jesus Jesus can and will continue to transform your beliefs you know where it says right we just read it in verse 11 and his disciples believed in him. Well, it's kind of funny because last week, if you remember in that passage at the end of chapter one, we talked about his disciples believing in him. They, they, at least some of them had already believed. Some of them had called him the son of God, the Christ. But in this passage, in this story, they've now seen more of his glory. They've grown in their faith. In Mark chapter 9, there's a story of a father who comes to Jesus and asks for healing for his boy. The dad says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Don't we all, at least at times, if not all the time, identify with that father? I believe, help my unbelief. If we're Christians, we believe that Jesus is the only son of God, 
the Savior who brings life to those who repent from sin and trust in his name for rescue. But do we also always believe that our relationship with Jesus is absolutely more important than all our other family relationships? Do we also always believe that even when we sin, God still sees us as purified and clean? Do we also always believe that the joys of this life should be enjoyed as gifts, but not pursued as idols? He transforms unbelief into belief into saving faith. And he transforms belief into an even deeper faith in him and his truth. This story gives us hope that even as we struggle with doubt and forgiveness, we see that Jesus transforms our beliefs. When Jesus created, when Jesus transformed the water into wine, we saw him engage with his creation, with us. And we saw him transform it. We saw him transform us with a divine power that revealed his glory. And even as we struggle at times to fully always believe just how completely Jesus has transformed life, we also saw how Jesus, in his compassion for his people, transforms our very beliefs as well. Thank God for his grace and his mercy in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving the world so much that you sent Jesus, the only Son of God, to save it. Thank you for the miraculous signs that he did on this earth, revealed his power and glory. Thank you for his humility and sacrifice, laying down his innocent life to rescue guilty sinners like us. Please continue to transform us into men and women more like Jesus and use us to reach those who have yet to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. In his name, amen.